Okay, welcome everybody. Hello, Instagram. Hello, Zoom. <laughs> um, okay, uh, we missed last week, so I'm excited to be back. Uh, I hope everyone's Hanukkah was enjoyable. Um, you were able to get out of it something beautiful, even if some of it was hard. <laughs> Tends to be a mixture of things all at once, usually, right? Um, okay. We are on at chapter 34. And remember, we like, I'll remind you that 33 and 34 are like twins. They, they go together. And um, we, they both talk about joy. 30, chapter 33 and 34 both talk about joy. But they're the joy after chapter 32. Okay, so remember, 26 through 34 talk about joy. Chapter 32 interrupted with the talk about love your fellow as yourself, right? We, we took a break from joy for chapter 32. Now, the difference between the joy chapters before 32 and after 32 is this. Before 32, we were troubleshooting right? So we were problem solving and trying to um, fix things, right? Chapter 32, uh, I mean, chapter 33 and 34 is a proactive joy. Does anyone remember what we are joyous about in these two chapters? What are we focusing on? So we are focusing on creating a dwelling place for God. And we're talking about creating a dwelling place for God in the context of joy. Okay. And remember 35, 36, and 37, I believe, is going to continue talking about creating a dwelling place for Hashem as a concept and topic onto itself. Right now, this concept is a means to an end, right? We're using this concept as a means to be joyous, right? And last week, we spoke about, like, if you were to sum up chapter 33 in one sentence, it would be this. It would be being happy that you can provide Hashem a dwelling place for him in the, in, in the lowest worlds, okay? Now, interestingly enough, if we were to be very general, that same um, sentence could exactly describe chapter 34 as well. Okay. Because we're, it's a, a direct continuation of chapters 33. Now the, the difference is going to be the end game is the dwelling place. The question is, how are we getting there? How are we creating that dwelling place for Hashem? Okay. Um, in chapter 33, we talked about not allowing the existence of creation to distract you from the fact that creation and God are one, right? So sometimes we, you know, we're so, we can be so distracted by our day-to-day -day life and the, and the mundane and the physical aspects of this world that we forget and we think that the world is an existence onto itself. But we know because we studied, remember chapter, chapters 18 through 26, we studied that the complete unity of God and nothing exists outside of Hashem. So when we can move past that concept and that distraction of thinking the world exists onto itself, then 
that's a delusion. Remember, we it's a it's we're not saying that the world is an illusion. We're not saying that the world doesn't exist. What we're saying is that the world exists, but we have we have a delusion that it's an entity onto itself, right? And really, it's just an, a manifestation and an expression of Hashem. So when we can um, recognize that the Hashem and His creation is one. And what we are here to do in this world is to reveal God in this world, right? Um, then that brings us a ton of joy. So what we're saying is that the world is, is, is Hashem, but it's concealed, right? It's hidden. Hashem is hidden in this world. So our job is to reveal him. Our job is to expose God in this world. Right. Um, and so not that it doesn't exist, not that it's not there, but it's just our job to make that known. Like we God is so hidden in this world that it is possible for us to believe that the world is uh, exists onto itself. And not only that, we actually there are probably the majority of the world even believes that the world doesn't need God. That's how hidden Hashem can be, is that we can think that we don't even need God, right? The world is just this cosmic thing that self-perpetuates and that just things happen by chance, right? Like that's how diminished God is in this world to the naked eye, right? But we know, right, through our journey through Tanya, we, first of all, we know that that's not the case. So now we're at least educated to know that Hashem is here in this world. And we also know that we are tasked with the job and our whole purpose in this world is to create that dwelling place for Hashem. And um, that brings us joy, right? And because what, how do, like, what is the, the um, parable that we use, right? If you were asked to host the king in your home, right? You're gonna be pretty happy about that. Right. So you're we're super joyous that we are hosting God in our home. Right. But then we're also bringing God joy. Right. Remember, we had this whole doubled and redoubled joy. Right. So we're happy because we get to host God. We're happy that Hashem is happy. Hashem is happy because he gets what he wants. And Hashem is happy that we're happy. So it's like doubled and redoubled joy. That's how we ended off last chapter. OK, so. Um, oh, and one more thing that I want to emphasize is that we talked about last week is if you think about Hashem being here in this world, you allow him to be here in this world, right? Like, okay, obviously he's regardless whether we want him here or not, but if we allow him into our life, then he's going to be in our life. And we're going to feel him in our life, right? If we keep pushing God away, it's very hard for him to feel comfortable, right? And so we're not going to see God. But if we invite him into our life, if we acknowledge him, right? And we um, are, are tasked with reveling in his presence and knowing that everything happens in this world is godly, then he's going to be in our life, right? So it goes back to what we discussed in chapter four, right? what you think about is what you're going to care about, right? So what we, when we think about God and when we allow him a space, we make room for him, then he's here. Okay. 
Um, any questions so far? So by the way, that whole chapter, that could be a meditation onto itself. If you would want to sit down and think about God, right? Chapter 33 is a, is a meditation. You can think about all those things we just talked about, and that would be a meditation practice. And at the end of the med meditation, what should be the outcome? Who's listening? The outcome should be joy, right? If you meditate on these things, the outcome of that meditation should be joy, okay? Now, so what are we transitioning into chapter 34? Chapter 34 is we, we're, we're working towards the same ultimate goal, right? We're just going to get there a little differently. So how, what's the journey of chapter 34? So the chapter starts talking about our forefathers, our avos, our forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? And the Torah refers to them, they were considered chariots, okay? Markava, chariots. Um, they were, they, that's one of the descriptions that are, that we use when we talk about the forefathers. Why, why a chariot? What's the definition of a chariot? A chariot has no will onto itself. Okay. Um, it doesn't, it can't drive by itself, right? It only, um, fulfills the needs of its driver, right? So wherever the driver or the, you know, yeah, the horse, what do you call them? The the horse riders, like <laughs> what do you call them? The, I don't know, whatever. The driver of the chariot tells the chariot where to go, okay? So it is completely subservient to its driver. The chariot is not going to go anywhere by itself. It's not going to have, it's not going to be like, the driver's not going to be like, um, you go here and the chariot's going to be like, no, I'm going to go that way right? It has no will onto itself. So that is exactly why that the, the forefathers were considered chariot because they had no personal will. Everything that they did was a manifestation of God's will. They physically manifested God's will to a hundred percent, right? So that, that was coachman. Thank you. <laughs> you figured it out. Thank um, you, Google. Yeah, I was going to drive me crazy. Um, <laughs> so the, uh, okay, one second. Let me just make sure I'm not missing any chats. Okay, good. Um, so the chariot is completely subservient to the coachman, right? And our forefathers were completely subservient to Hashem. They had no, it wasn't like Hashem said, I really would like you to do this. And the forefathers were like, I don't think so. I'm going to do that. Right. Any, everything they did was a direct expression of Hashem's will. Right. So, um, we, we learned back in, um, chapter, I think it was chapter 23 to be exact, but it was in that section of that really hardcore chapters, 18 to 25 of talking about the oneness of God, right. In chapter 23, we talked about, this black and white state of being, right? And I'm going to remind you here because it was a little while ago. Um, we are either connected or disconnected, okay? We are either connected to Hashem or disconnected. We, we, we speak about a lot in the Tanya that there's a lot of like gray area, meaning everything's relative. We're all on a journey. And very few things are black and white. But the Tanya does tell us, the altar tells us that there is no such thing as 
being in the middle. We are either connected or disconnected. It means we're either a catalyst of Hashem's will or we're not, we're disconnected, okay? So, and we spoke about every mitzvah, no matter what it is, like there's no, at, at, at the basic level, there's no hierarchy of mitzvahs, okay? Every mitzvah is a connection, okay? So when we're fulfilling God's will, when we're doing a mitzvah, we are connected. When we are not, we are disconnected, okay? There's no middle to that, right? So um, every time we do a mitzvah, it puts us in that chariot-like state, okay? When we're in the midst of fulfilling God's will, we're doing a mitzvah, um, then we are chariots to Hashem. We are a physical conduit and expression of God's will, okay? So we can actually have chariot-like moments, right? So if we can be chariots to Hashem, what is so special about the forefathers being chariots to God, right? Obviously, we're not on the same level. And so we want to understand if we can, if there's no hierarchy of mitzvahs, and if there's, we're either connected or disconnected, right? And when we're doing a mitzvah, we're connected and we're chariots to Hashem. What's the great big deal about our forefathers being this direct, expression of God's will. Okay. And what we're, what we mentioned here is that there's noises. Um, <laughs> I'm alone in this big office. Um, what we mentioned is that, okay, true. We are not talking about a qualitative difference. Okay. Because quality wise, we're connected or disconnected. So we actually, when we do a mitzvah, we have the same connection like our forefathers. The quality is the same. What's different? The quantity, right? We can have moments of chariot-like experience, right? And we can go in and out of that experience multiple times a day, even hundreds of times a day, right? Like we can go in and out of this status. The difference of our forefathers is that they were consistently in this chariot mode. And that is a big deal to be consistently without fail, a vehicle of God's expression and his, um, his direct, you know, whatever, direct expression for his will, that is a feat, right? And our experience is yes, quality, when we're connected to Hashem, the quality is the same, which should blow your mind actually. Right? When I am doing a mitzvah, I have the same level of connection that Avraham Avinu did when he was connected to Hashem. Like, that's crazy, right? But what we aspire to, you know, which we're not going to be tzaddikim, so it's not going to be the same experience. But the more we involve ourselves in spiritual godly matters, the more our Physical body is an expression of godliness. Okay, it's hard to so far. It's like yeah. hard to grasp onto that. that the what part is the same? That it's the same connection. Yeah. Okay, so um, Sarah just said it's hard to grasp the fact that we have the same connection to Hashem as our forefathers, and I I get that. That's why I'm saying like this should blow your mind. But I think that's that's where sometimes we we miss out is that we're 
we're so we put ourselves in a box or we're told like you know we can't be something or we can't do something and and what i think is so powerful about that statement is that it can go either way because i just think it's really powerful that we're connected or we're not connected right and connection like it the connection when we're connected to hashem we're connected right when we're doing that mitzvah like if you think about it, why should it be different? I feel like the the uh, the idea that the world is so different, and that the, like the expectations are so different because of what they were able to tap into. I feel like it's that. Yeah, uh, and what the Tanya is saying is like, guess what? Like mitzvahs are mitzvahs; they haven't changed. Maybe, you know, our generations have different challenges or different mitzvahs are harder, different mitzvahs are harder to tap into. There's different um, temptations, but when you're actually connecting, there's no difference between any generation, any world, and there's no difference between mitzvahs. Lighting Shabbos candles and eating kosher and putting on tefillin are all going to get you to the same place. Now, we will well, talk about the fact. Yeah, go ahead. We're all part of the same soul. Yes. Yes. And that's why we're the same as the avot. Yes, exactly. Because we're really just one one being, right? So if, if why right. should it be different if I'm connecting to Hashem and Avram Avinu is connecting huh. to Hashem, right? That's a great point. Yeah. Thank you. Beautiful, Barbara. Thank you. Um, what was I going to say? Yeah, I don't know. I'll remember. <laughs> I, I have another question. Yeah. In terms of the, the connecting versus disconnected, is there um, a plausibility of being connected if you're like, I'm thinking about when we meditate or when we are doing something in the service of God if it's not an explicit mitzvah and and if that counts in the like, category of connecting okay we're gonna get to that okay we're gonna talk about that and I remember what I was gonna say I was gonna say it, later on in a couple chapters we will talk about doing a mitzvah with intention and doing a mitzvah without intention okay that's gonna that does have an impact and that will make a difference okay so Yes, every mitzvah is this gives us the same connection, but how we do the mitzvah will affect what kind of connection we have. Okay, so leave that on the burner because we'll get to that. It might even be in the 40s. I don't remember, but we will get we'll, we will get to that. Okay, so so we know that we're either connected or disconnected. We know that um, when we're doing a mitzvah, we are connected. The quality is the same as our forefathers, just the quantity is different, right? Um, so what we're going to talk about is when the, the point of this chapter is that there are such people that live as chariots to godliness um, all the time, right? And they're actually real people. Right? Like we're not talking about angels. We're talking about people who are physical humans and bodies, souls and bodies, right? Our forefathers were real people. And um, there are other 
there are other, in every generation, there are people like that. Okay. And the prophets were like that. Who was the greatest prophet of all time? Moshe Rabbeinu, right? He was a chariot to God to the point where God literally spoke through him. Right. So, um, there, that, that, that concept does exist throughout generations. And like Sarah says, tzaddikim, right? The, there are, they're very few and far between, but they do exist. They do exist. Oh my gosh. Is someone calling me? Goodbye. Okay. Um, um, they do, they do exist, right? Now, we actually, during the time of Moshe Rabbeinu, we actually experienced God talking to us directly, like Moses, right? When did that happen? At Mount Sinai. At Mount Sinai, at Har Sinai, when Hashem gave us the Torah, God spoke to us directly. What happened? We died. <laughs> we could not handle it. Like, Hashem said the first commandment, we passed out. He's like, okay, I'll revive you. Let me try again. Second commandment, we passed out, right? And then, then Moshe had to take over. So we, we had that experience. We couldn't handle it, right? As regular souls and bodies, not as Moshe Rabbeinu. <gasps> I'm muted? No. Oh man, I'm so sorry. It's when, when I get a phone call. Okay, hey, hold on a second, guys. I'm gonna I'm gonna start it again. But it's so fun. Someone tells you that means I'm listening. I'm I'm glad I saw it. Right? Like, okay, delete video. Okay, we're gonna. Barbara, your again. cat looks so cuddly. Thank you. <laughs> it's pretty cozy. Okay. Oh no, no, no. That's not what I want to do. I don't know. Oh gosh. I don't know what's happening. Did you have a class last week, Javi? No, we did not okay. have class last week. Oh, that's okay, what I was great. doing. I was making a reel. No, I don't want a reel to do a reel. This is very special. Okay, live. Here we go. Uh, I always like, nobody call me, please. Okay. I feel bad for people who are listening back to this on the podcast. <laughs> this is what happens when you don't come live. Okay. Sorry, guys. Do you hear me? Give me a thumbs up if you hear me. Okay. Um, now. Okay. I hope you guys hear me. Where was I up to? Okay. So we, um, we had that experience at Mount Sinai. We, we passed out. We weren't able to handle it. Right. And um, we couldn't sustain it. We, we couldn't handle that amount of revelation at once for our body. So what did Hashem do? Hashem said, okay, we need a place for this kind of revelation to exist in the world, right? It needs, we need to have a safe space for this, for this revelation of God. What was that place? The place was the Beis HaMikdash, okay? And before the Beis HaMikdash, the Mishkan. But the Holy Temple was that place for God's um, uh, outward revelation and specifically the Holy of Holies. Okay, so even the Beit HaMikdash was not completely open to the revelation of God. Specifically, the Holy of Holies was the holiest place on earth. And that's where God's um, unadulterated um, um, light and presence was felt for real. 
Okay. And so we didn't, and most people weren't allowed to go in there, right? Just the Kohen Gazo once a year, but it was in this world. This world needs to have a place where that godly revelation could exist. Okay. So that was in the base of Mikdash. Now we also know that it's very interesting because in that, in that space of Holy of Holies, um, that, that level of, of light was the most extreme, the most intense. And it was very, very fascinating because it was, it worked within space and time, but above it, right? Like it was limited by space and time, but not, right? So, and what's the example that the Torah gives is that if you would measure the wall from end to end um, with the arc in it, would measure the same with it out of it, right? So 10 cubits. So like if you would measure the space um, what, how would it go? If you would measure the space, yeah, if you would take the space with the, with the arc inside would be 10 cubits and without it, it would be 10 cubits. So it was in, it, it met, like you could measure, it was in time and space, but it was also above time and space. That is only something that could happen with that level of godliness being expressed in that moment. Okay. So it was the whole, it was the Holy of Holies. It was the only place in the world where Hashem existed that way. Right. And, um, it was the physical location that expressed God in a, the most revealed way in this world. Okay. So now what happened when the base of was destroyed? There needed to be a place for that level of holiness to go to, right? Um, so where did it go? This is, this is super fascinating. What, where did this, where, how do we access this level of revelation once the base of was destroyed? And the Tanya says, in the four cubits of Torah study, specifically halacha, okay? So guys, Listen to what we're saying here. When we study Torah, okay, specifically halacha, and we'll understand why in a minute, we are tapping into and accessing the most revealed aspects and revelation of God. You understand what we're saying? Yeah. What I'm like, saying, it's so lofty. Do I understand it? I don't know. Yes. What we're saying is God's most intimate and infinite expression is in his Torah. Okay. And when we learn his Torah, specifically halacha, we are tapping into that. Okay. So actually... As it turns out, after the temple was destroyed, it actually became more accessible, right? Because in the times of the temple, it was only the Kohen Gadol one time a year who actually got to experience that. Yeah, it was in the world because the world needed it to exist, but it was very, very limited on who actually was experiencing that. What we're saying now is that when we, so Hashem had to find another spot for that holiness. And that is in the Torah. 
Okay, that is in studying halacha. Specifically, we're going to talk about why specifically halacha. Okay, so um, let me just one second make sure I didn't. So, what does this mean? Okay, um, the world belongs to Hashem. Okay, we know that. But how the question is, how recognizable is that ownership? We know the people who are studying Tanya specifically know that the world belongs to Hashem. How recognizable is that ownership? And like I said before, at some point, it could be so unrecognizable that we not only think that the world is separate from God, we think that it doesn't need God, right? So um, is God revealed or concealed in this world, right? The question is not whether he is or isn't in this world, right? That's not the question. We know he's the world, right? The question is, do we see it or not? Do we tap into it or not? Right, any questions so far? Okay, I'm just reminding my Instagram friends, you could put questions in the comment box. I will see it, okay? So um, one place, that we know that we can absolutely tap into that godliness and reveal it with our action is in the study of halacha, okay? That is um, always going to be the place where God feels the most comfortable, right? So he lives there. And then when we study Torah and we access it, we make that, we make our world a little bit more recognizably godly. Okay, now, so we wanna understand this a little further. And in order to do so, we're gonna discuss something that we're gonna dis discuss even further later on in a few chapters later, but it's important to discuss it now. And that is, let's discuss for a second the idea of our will our rutsam, our inner desires, our desires, right? Now there's a concept of inner will and outer will, okay? What does that mean? Because um, will is not like a monolithic concept. It has dimensions, it has layers, right? There's a lot of layers to will. So um, within will, what's considered an inner will and an outer will, right? So when something is a stepping stone for something else, if it's a means to an end, that would be considered an outer will. Okay. So for example, and that could be many layers. You could have many, many steps to get to where you want to get to, till you get to that inner will. So for example, a really great example is like setting your alarm clock in the morning, right? So you set your alarm clock in the morning and someone will ask, could ask you, well, did you want to set that alarm clock? And you're like, well, yeah, I want to get up in the morning, but like, is that your innermost desire to like have an alarm? Like, no, you set the alarm clock because you need to get up in the morning, right? Why do you need to get up in the morning to go to work? Why do you need to go to work to provide for your family? Why do you need to provide for your family? Because you have children that you care for. Why do you care about your children? Because it all eventually will lead to serving God, right? 
Um, everything's an outward expression of serving God. But how many layers of will did it take you to get to your innermost will? And how do you know when you're at your inner dimension of will? When someone asks you why and you don't have an answer. And it's just because, right? Once you get to that place where there's no answer because I love it, because I want to, that's your inner will. Because it's nothing else. It's not a stepping stone for anything else, right? It's not a means to an end. So any desire or will that's a means to an end is considered an outer will. Anything that doesn't get to an answer and is just because I want to or because I love it or because that whatever lights me up, right? That is your inner will. Now, eventually, everything should lead to service of God. But for example, like just as very, very superficial example, and I always, it always comes back to food, obviously. But like, you, you, you cannot ask someone why they like a particular food. Because you like it, because it's delicious to you, right? Why do you like sweet? Why do you like salty? Why? Why? There's no answer to that question. It is, is a question without an answer. So that's just like a superficial example of helping understand what it means to not be able to answer a question about will, right? So now we know, we understand that an inner will is um, a means to an end. It is layers till you get to your actual purpose. And what it's, what really all desires lead to is what's your purpose, right? What's your purpose in this world? What is your mission? What is your service, right? That's your inner will. Everything else is a means to an end if you're tapped into it, okay? So let's, let's apply this to God for a second. Okay, well, I just saw the time. Hopefully we are. Um, okay, so applying this to God. Does Hashem, okay, random example. Does God want there to be cows in this world? Yes. Well, how do we know that? Because there's cows exist. in the world, right? If there weren't, if God didn't want them, they wouldn't, they wouldn't exist. But is that God's innermost desire to have cows? No. What, what, what did God put cows in this world for? Because there's a purpose for the cows, right? What would be some examples? Parchment for tefillin, for Torah, for mezuzahs, right? Milk. Milk to feed, right? Like meat to eat. I'm sorry to all the vegans who might be listening to this. <laughs> it's a disclaimer. Make them cool. We talk about that later. Um, this is just the example that I have. I could try to think of another one. But, but, but having cows isn't the ultimate of God's desire, it's a means to an end. Is even having to fill in in this world a mean, a, a innermost desire? No, it's for the person to put on the tefillin, right? That's God's innermost desire. Why? Because he wants it, right? Why? Because he wants to be, he wants to be in your life. He wants to be in this world. Why? Because that's what lights him up. That's what makes him happy, right? There's no... Like you don't ask questions on a desire, right? On a taiva, right? You don't ask questions on a, like a, you know? So that is how it applies to God, okay? So um, you can look around the world and you can see many different expressions of godliness, 
Okay. Cause why? Cause everything is an expression of godliness. So you can see everything that you turn to could be an expression of godliness, but is it his innermost desire and will, right? What is the one thing that literally tells us what God's innermost will is? Halacha. Right? Halacha literally tells us, I want you to do this. I want it to be done this way. I want you to do it at this time. Right? That. Okay, whatever. Now it's pause support connection. I don't know. I'm sorry. Come on to Zoom. That's the lesson. <laughs> um, we have more fun on Zoom. We have more fun on Zoom. Everyone on Instagram. Um, okay, so where we're going to tap into God's inner will, inner dimensions of his will is when we learn halacha. And it doesn't, it makes sense because he's literally, it literally is telling us exactly what he wants. You know, when like sometimes, I mean, I, I say this so many times I walk around the house. I'm like, I don't know what God wants from me. What does he want from me already? I'm like, really, really? I know exactly what he wants from me. Right. It doesn't make it easy. It doesn't make me want to do it, but like God made it very clear what he wants from me. Right. So when we learn halacha, we are tapping into his inner will. And that's where God, that's when you want to get to know somebody, you get to know what they want, right? Not what they think, not what they do, not what they say. What does that person want? What makes that person happy? What tick, what makes that person tick, right? What lights them up? That's when you get to know a person. So same with God, you can look around the world and you can see very, a lot of different manifestations of his outer will. But if you want to get to God's inner will and inner desires, that is in the dimensions of halacha. And so when we spend time learning halacha, that's what we're doing. We are becoming chariots to God's will. Yeah? Make sense? I'm not saying it's doable or easy, but it makes sense, right? We understand why this is the way it is. Now, so you, I mean, what are we supposed to do? Learn halacha all day? Right? It's interesting because here we are learning Tanya, which is a beautiful part of Torah, but it's not Halacha, right? So it's always, um, we need to know what to do and why we do it, right? So Nigla, like the outer dimensions of Torah, like Halacha and Torah teaches us what we need to do. And then when we learn it, this, this esoteric versions of the Torah and the Kabbalistic, like it helps us tell us why. So it motivates us. So what happens is, we wouldn't know how important it is to, to learn halacha if we didn't learn chassidus, right? Like, because we're learning chassidus, we now know how important it is to go back and learn halacha. So really chassidus is, should be propelling you to learn, to learn more, right? Like it should be motivating you and helping you understand why learning is so important, right? So obviously, Let's go back to um, the beginning for a second, because I think we just need to, to like sum it up. The patriarchs were chariots, right? Completely, utterly subservient to God's will, right? And the prophets were like that too, especially Moshe Rabbeinu. 
we experience this phenomenon at Harsinai, right? We experienced what that feels like at one point and we couldn't handle it, right? So God said, what am I going to do with this lofty, godly um, energy that is killing, <laughs> it's killing my people, right? I'm going to put it into the Holy of Holies in the temple, right? So, the, the, so then this, this energy had a home. Then what happens when the base of Mikdash was destroyed? It was removed from there and it was put into the study of Halacha. Okay? We're good. Okay? The next part of this chapter is going to outline for us another meditation. Okay? The altar is literally going to tell us what we need to tell ourselves and what we need to think to then produce our end game. Right? Which is a dwelling place for God, which is which brings us joy. So what do we need to tell ourselves? We need to say to ourselves, okay? It is true that my thoughts are inadequate to act as a chariot for God, right? We can't really wrap our mind around infinity. Like it's a very hard thing to wrap our mind around infinity, right? Um, I can't grasp him. No one can grasp him, right? And this is very fascinating. This is, it's really, when I heard this from Rabbi Shea's tab, I was like, oh my God, that's such a good point. Some people can grasp infinity more than others, right? Like some people's mind can go a little bit further, but at the end of the day, you can't grasp infinity more or less. You're still not grasping it, you know? Like maybe you get a little farther, but what we do? Like you're still gonna hit, I, I say this all the time in time, you're gonna hit the wall. You're gonna hit a point where this is not gonna make logical sense and you're gonna have to then employ your faith and your trust, right? So no one can grasp the infinity. If you wanna say you grasp it a little bit more than others, your mind comprehends it to a certain point that's further than somebody else, yay for you, you're still not grasping infinity. Okay, so, um, so it's really irrelevant how much you do grasp or don't grasp. We're all not grasping, right? Okay, so, um, so we, so this is what we tell ourselves is that we can get there we can't get there by comprehension alone, right? We, we can't grasp Hashem by comprehension alone. Therefore, what I could do is I can focus my energies in creating a home for God, right? And how I do that is throughout my day, creating times of Torah study, right? Which will then create a home for God. Okay. Um, so what's, what really is most important is creating a place in this concealed world where Hashem's innermost will is manifested. Okay. So we, we should not what is our thought process here? What's our meditation? We cannot grasp God completely. We cannot grasp infinity. We shouldn't get distracted by that. Nobody can do it. 
right? But what we could do is we can create a dwelling place for God in this world. How do we do that? By creating pockets of time in our day to study Torah, right? And when we study Torah, it creates a place in this physical world where God's innermost will is being manifested, right? Which is through halacha, right? When we learn halacha, and then we eventually do the halacha, we are creating a dwelling place for God in this world where his innermost desires are being fulfilled, right? And obviously, we can't, you know, most of us cannot study Torah all day, right? We have to go to a work. We have to provide for our families. So the Altarebbe tells us something else. He's like, yes, we can't study Torah all day. We could make time for it in our day once or twice or three times, whatever, whatever is in your capacity, you could make time for it. But guess what? There's another way that you can um, create that dwelling place for Hashem that is pretty continuous. And one of the examples that the Altarebbe gives is tzedakah. Okay, why is tzedakah that example? Because when you give tzedakah from the money that you earned, when you went to work, where you're spending most of your day, when you take money out of that time that you spend and that money that you earned and you give tzedakah out of it, it is elevating all that. Okay, so do you hear what we're saying here? You go to work, you make money, you spend most of your day at work. If you give tzedakah from that money, every single minute of that time spent making that money is creating a dwelling place for Hashem. You have elevated it all. What if you don't work? Okay, good question. What if you don't work? Then you need to find something that elevates your day, right? So you, so you, First of all, you can still give tzedakah, which elevates all that, all that time that you, whatever, wherever that money came from, that's being elevated. But if you don't work, you know, what are you, when you eat, you sit down and make a bracha, right? On your food, a blessing on your food, right? That's well, elevating that whole meal. That is creating a dwelling place for God during that whole meal. If you are God conscious, right? With everything you do, you are going to create a dwelling place for God. The reason why I brought up work is because so many people, that is their reality. And they say, well, I, how am I supposed to bring God into my life during work? Right? And the altar says, give tzedakah, give tzedakah. Then all that time and energy and, and money that you, that took up that space is now elevated and is now a conduit for God's dwelling place in this world. Okay, and sorry, halacha in English is um, the code of Jewish law. It is what literally God, the, 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 the tenets of what God wants us to live by, right? So that would include like the laws of kosher, the laws of Shabbos, the laws of farming, the laws of, you know, family purity, like all the ways we're supposed to live. That's what, that's what encompasses halacha. Okay, so, um, so if you give tzedakah without working, that's okay. Is that the same thing or no? Yeah, yeah. If you give tzedakah, you're elevating all that, all the money, even the money that wasn't given to tzedakah is being elevated. Okay. Um, 
So the point is that you are being Hashem's host. You're inviting the king into your life. You are inviting the king into your home. You are making space for God. And when you make space for God, he comes. Okay. So yes, we, it's not all practical for us to learn all day, every day. Right. But what, what we just learned is you just have to do the things that halacha tells us to do. And that is revealing God's innermost will here in this world. Okay. So, um, let me see. It's time is almost up. So I want to make sure I just get everything in. Um, okay. What do I want to focus on? Okay. So what happens, right? You spend your day working, you give sadaka, you elevate your day, you elevate your home, you elevate your life, you invite God in. And guess what? What should happen from that? You should feel happy. Remember, we're it's all about the joy right now. We should feel happy because we are fulfilling God's will. And it's interesting because really, if you think about what makes us happy is the ability to give, right? The First of all, it's about God, right? And the things that make us happy is the um, ability to give up of, for others, right? That's really the definition of happiness. We get happy when we get things we want to, but if we really truly want to be happy, you know, the, the famous, like if you're feeling down or if you're feeling depressed or if you're feeling sad, go do something for somebody else right? Because that's where true happiness comes from. The ability to give of ourselves, right, is, brings so much joy, okay? So if we were to sum up chapter 34, um, and that's the last of the happiness chapters, okay? We're wrapping up the happiness chapters over here, right? Um, uh, what, and because the next um, the next couple chapters are going to, we're going to continue talking about the dwelling place for Hashem, but it's going to be about that concept onto itself, not for a means to an end. Okay. So the conclusion of chapter 34 goes like this. You should remember, even though we have several ways to be happy, right? We have a lot of ways we get to happiness. Um, it's not a contradiction to the fact that we can and should. Oh, this is okay. Sorry. This is not a sum up. This is something that we're talking about. We talked about before, but we're bringing it back home in this chapter because we did talk about it. Um, it. It doesn't contradict the fact that we can and should feel frustrated by our bodies and animal souls limitations. Okay. Now, we can experience both of these emotions at the same time. We can experience extreme happiness that we are a conduit for God's will and we are, we are expressing and bringing God into this world. And at the same time, we can feel frustrated that we're sometimes held back by our body and our animal soul. And it's okay to have these two things happen at once, especially because they're about two different things, right? One's about our animal soul and one's about our godly soul. We're not having two opposing emotions about one thing. 
We're having two emotions about two different things that exist in our bodies. Like we're a walking paradox. Okay. That's what we are. Okay. So joy comes from the ability of a divine soul to serve God. Okay. And frustration comes from the limitation of our animal soul and our body that sometimes trap us, right? Because we're human and we're not sadikim. So we do get trapped by our, our animal soul and our bodies, right? And that's okay, but you can compartmentalize, right? You can be like, I feel frustrated about this and I feel happy about this, okay? Um, remember, the frustration doesn't sound like I'm bitter and angry about my lot in life, okay? That is not the frustration we're talking about. We're frustrated are on the fact that we were created with these limitations, these physical limitations, okay? Um, so if you were to ask yourself, are you your godly soul or are you your animal soul? What would the answer be? Yes, both, right? And if you are to be asked, are you happy or are you frustrated? Yes, to both, right? Okay, and that's not a contradiction. Okay, and this is the ideal way to feel for a Bainani and for a striving Bainani, right? A Bainani has that perfect actions, but he still very much struggles inside. So he still very much feels that frustration. So that is what we're, our, our literal goal is, yes, I'm happy when I serve Hashem. Yes, I'm frustrated that I still struggle and I have limitations. Yes, I'm my animal soul. Yes, I'm my godly soul, right? We, um, we can feel these two emotions at the same time. And we understand that it's not an inherent contradiction, right? It might be a paradox, but our whole narrative is a paradox, right? We learned that all the way in chapter one. The first thing we learned about is the fact that we are a walking paradox. We have two opposing um, entities in our in who that make uh, make us up and want totally opposite things, right? So chapter thirty four at the end wants us to bring all of that home, right? Because we want to we want to finish those happiness chapters, but we also want to make sure that we're not going to get discouraged and feel like we're failing when we're frustrated. And when our animal soul gets the better of us, because it will, will happen because we're, we're, we're working on this, right? We have not achieved it yet. So um, we're our godly soul, we're our animal soul. We, we have the ability, not to really sum it up, we have the ability to create a dwelling place for God in this world, right? How do we do that? by tapping into God's innermost desires. What, where does that live? Where does God's innermost desires live? In halacha, right? Because that, I mean, it's literally telling us what God's desires are. When we study halacha, we are creating that dwelling place fresh and we are becoming that catalyst for God's will. How else do we do that, right? One example is giving tzedakah because when we spend most of our day earning money, um, then, we, when we give tzedakah from that money, we elevate all that time into a dwelling place for God. We bring God into our home and then he comes. Okay. So any questions before our quick meditation? I'm sorry if we're going to go a teeny tiny bit over time, but we did cover a lot.
So any questions, anything that is confusing, that doesn't sit well with you, comments, thoughts, ideas, I'm here for it. If somebody is the recipient of Sadaka, how do they give Sadaka? Oh, beautiful. Okay, so you can always give tzedakah. Um, and somebody who's a recipient of tzedakah can give a little tiny bit from that to somebody else, right? Pay it forward, right? And then they're elevating their whole experience. And yeah. does tzedakah have to be money or can it be helping somebody learn to do something that's gonna help them. Yeah, that actually is probably the highest form of tzedakah is if you teach somebody a skill that helps them be independent, that is probably the highest form of tzedakah. Okay, let's get the meditation in. So in case anybody wants to sign off and then if anyone has questions after that, I'm happy to stick around. Okay, get comfortable. I do feel like if you can participate in the meditation, I do feel like it's very helpful just to like center and like, like, okay, what am I taking home with me? Breathe in through your nose, out through your mouth. Just focus on your breath for a minute um, and lean into whatever your natural rhythm of your breath is doing. Don't try to change anything. If it helps for you to have like a, a even count, like a for your exhale and your inhale, go with that. Okay, while you're breathing, I just want you to pay attention to any sensations you might be feeling in your body, any tension, any, anything you might just observe, you know, don't try to change it, just observe it and notice it. Once you're kind of aware of where you might be holding any of that tension, I want you to just imagine this bright shining light shining into your body and melting away any of that tension till you're just like feel relaxed and soft. Okay, I want you to bring your attention to these couple thoughts, these food for thoughts that you can take home with you and think about throughout your week. Our ultimate mission in this world is to create a dwelling place for Hashem. Which should bring us a lot of joy. Because when you get, when you get, the king into your home 
Nothing better than that. How do we create this sewing place for Hashem? We tap into his innermost desires, which is learning Torah, specifically Halacha. When we do that, we are inviting God into our home and then he comes. So what I really want you to take away from this class is the power that you have. First of all, any single mitzvah we do connects us to Hashem, no matter big or small. And when, when we do that, we are inviting God into our home, which is his ultimate desire. And then he wants to be here. Just sit with that thought for a minute. How powerful is that? What does that make you feel? Any sensations in your body when you think about that? How does that change your life on a practical level? Does it change your life on a practical level? Bring your attention back to your breath. A couple deep breaths in and out. Start to just feel your body in its space, kind of bring yourself back to center. And when you're ready, you can gently open your eyes. Take your time. Sorry, I had to rush through that a little bit because I didn't want to go too over time, um, but I hope it helped you just um, bring some of that home with you. Um, any questions or comments before we sign off? It's all clear. It's all good. <laughs> um, okay. If you have any questions, you know where to find me. At this point, you should know where to find me. Um, and thank you so much for joining. We will be here again next week. And that's it. Take care. Thank you so much. Thank You're you. So welcome. Bye. Have a great week. Thank you. You too.